0: Um, Some years ago, when I was uh, probably starting in fourth grade up until I was about seventh grade, there was a 7-Eleven store that I used to uh, visit every week. Every week, I would go to this one 7-Eleven with my friends and my older brother, and we would go there uh, to play video games. I would watch, maybe play a game or two, but the others would love playing games like uh, track and field. They had this track and field championship game, and in order to make the guy run faster, you had to push the button as fast as you can. And the faster you pushed it, the faster the guy would run. And they loved doing that. And they loved breaking Olympic records. And they would play that. And then every now and then they would switch out the games. And it became Street Fighter and all these other games that they would play. And uh, they would line up their quarters on the edge of the, on the video game thing. And, and they would play. And I always, every time I would walk in, as I opened the door, as someone would open the door, I would always see this little sign that said, no shirt, no shoes, no service. And I thought that was so funny. And for a while, I just kind of chuckled to myself. And then after some time, I finally uh, asked my brother, I said, why is it that 7-Eleven puts that sign out there? To me, what it meant to me was that here, we don't sell shoes, we don't sell shirts, and we don't sell services. And so I thought, well, that's awfully nice of them to do that. But why do, they do, why, don't they, why do they pick those certain things? Why don't they say we don't sell TVs and we don't sell telephones? Why do they pick those? And he laughed at me and he said, that's not what it means. That it means if you don't have a shirt and if you don't have shoes on, then you won't get served. And I never forgot that sign, partly because you would see that sign at different places, McDonald's and other places like that. And I thought about that. No shirt, no shoes, no service. And to me, the message was clear that at 7-Eleven, they had certain standards. And if you don't meet those standards, then you're not welcome here. And I thought, what a message of ungrace that is. The reason I would go to that 7-Eleven every week is because across the street from that 7-Eleven was a church that I grew up going to for all the years of my life. And my parents would, uh, after worship service, they would be part of the team of 40 people who would count the money in a church of of thousands of people. That was an all Sunday affair. And so we had to try and think about what we would do with our time. And so we'd go to that 7-Eleven. And as I thought about the message that that 7-Eleven door presented and thought about the altogether different message that has been entrusted to the church, that to the people who don't feel welcome, to the people who don't feel like they meet the standards, to those who feel like they can't quite measure up, the doors of the church are open wide. And yet, as I looked at our parking lot filled with Mercedes Benz's and Beamers and expensive cars, I wondered if the message that people coming to our church felt was not altogether different from the message that those coming into 7-Eleven felt. That if you don't meet our standards, you're not welcome here. Can I ask you, actually, can I confess to you, if this is how you've ever felt coming to church, or coming to our church, or when you thought about Christianity, can I say I'm sorry? Because that's not the message that Jesus came teaching. And that's not a message that's going to change the world. That you've got to meet these standards, and if you don't, then you're not welcome here. You may be welcome somewhere else. The halfway house, the homeless shelter, but you're not welcome here. I hope that that's not the message that we've been teaching and preaching whether it be explicitly from here or implicitly through our lives. Because today, uh, I want to present the message that Jesus came to bring, and it is very countercultural, especially in the world, but sometimes maybe even in a church. We're going to read from Matthew 5, and we started this series last week on the Beatitudes that talk about the blessed life, the truly happy life. But more than that, it talks about what life in the kingdom of God looks like. The Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 1 through 12, tell us this is what a description of the Christian life is. This is what the Christian life should look like. And it is a rubric against which we ought to measure our lives to say, if my life doesn't look like this, then maybe I haven't really surrendered my life to the king of this kind of kingdom, Jesus Christ. And if it's not, then we would think deeply about what we need to do in order to get right with our maker. This is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. This is God's word. Jesus is speaking uh, and Matthew records. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets, who are before you. This is God's word. We're going to focus on verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This beatitude of being poor in spirit. Is the, is, the, is the doorway into the kingdom of heaven. If you're not poor in spirit. Then you're not part of the kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying. Right? Poverty of spirit. Is the precursor to entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven, it's very is a very important thing. And he's saying each of these things, each of these things, are fruit of the Christian life. It's not that if you have maybe three or four of these things, you're a child of God. If you have five or six, he's saying all of these things are characteristic of life in the kingdom. Do you have these things in your life? Allow this to be a litmus test. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then from there, he goes on and he talks about other things. But every other thing that he says is the fruit of the blessed life is a sign of fullness. You will receive, you will be filled, you will be satisfied. These are signs of fullness, okay? Every other beatitude is a sign that we're filled with something, but the first one says you need to first be emptied of something. Blessed are the poor in spirit, because unless you are emptied, you cannot be filled. Unless you have nothing, can you receive something from God? Blessed are the poor in spirit. You've got to realize your utter, absolute bankruptcy before God, because if you don't, then you can't have these other things. Not only is he saying that. But he's saying, if you've ever looked at the Beatitudes and say, you know what, I need to do these things. I need to work my way to get these things. You've looked at this mountain of the Beatitudes and said, okay, I'm going to get to start scaling this mountain. Then you have no idea what it means to be poor in spirit. And you may be further from the kingdom than you really think. All right, so two things we're going to talk about today, about being poor in spirit. Here's the first thing. The blessed life begins When we admit that we have nothing. The blessed life begins when we admit that we have nothing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. When the Bible talks about the word poor, there's two words that it uses. One means you've got about 10 bucks left in your account, right? You got, you're down to your last $10. You are in trouble. You're hurting. But you still got a little bit in reserve, 10 bucks, maybe enough to buy one or two more meals. The other word says, That you're flat broke. You've got nothing. That unless someone gives you something, you're going to die of hunger. You're going to die of thirst. You're going to die of the elements. You have nothing left. And what the Bible is saying, what Jesus is saying when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He's not saying blessed are the people who've got $10 in their spirit left. He's saying blessed are you who know you've got nothing. Nothing. That you're completely broke and utterly desperate before God. Because these are the kinds of people who are poor in spirit and to theirs belongs the kingdom of heaven. This is very countercultural as you see our series title. Very countercultural because our world doesn't really like being called poor. Does everything we can in order to avoid the poor. Not to avoid poverty, but avoid the poor. Not only do we like, not like being poor, but we don't even like seeing the poor sometimes. Because this idea of, of, of poverty is not something that we like. And so we do whatever we can to shun and to move away from and to avoid poverty. Because that's what our world says. Hey, you know what? Being poor is not a blessed thing. In fact, you want to be blessed? It's being the opposite of poor. Being full, being rich, being ha- having all of these things means that you will be blessed. You will be blessed in this life. But Jesus flips the script upside down. He says, No, no, no. you want to be blessed then the entry point is admitting that you've got nothing. And it's a problem for our world because we don't like to see the poor. And even more, we don't like to be the poor. Now, How do you know that you're poor? Or how do you know that someone is poor? How do you know that you're not poor? You know, because you look at your life compared to other people. Here in America, family of four. Okay, family of four. The poverty line is about twenty-four thousand four hundred fifty dollars. If you're a family of four, that's the poverty line. Below that, you make less than twenty-four four fifty, then you're poor. If you're one person, a single person, single person, and you make less than eleven thousand dollars, eleven and, and some change, four seventy, eleven thousand four hundred seventy dollars. You make less than that, then you're considered poor. The challenge, though, is realizing. That if you lived in any other place in the world, or you, live, you take that globally, that $11,000 makes you richer than 85% of the world. How do you know that you're poor? It's always by looking at yourself compared to other people. That's why we in America probably will never consider ourselves to be poor, will not admit it at least. And the reason why we don't see a lot of poverty in spirit within a lot of churches because we're always looking at ourselves compared to other people people worse than me at least i don't do this at least i don't do that at least i don't you know we got some people in our congregation who microwave frogs in my microwave oven i'm not that bad i don't do that kind of stuff we compare ourselves with other people i don't do that on the weekends. I don't dress like that. I don't talk like that. And because we're always looking at other people, thinking I'm not, they're worse than me, we don't have this sense of poverty in spirit. When we do have that kind of an attitude, that's what causes people to say, you know what, Christians are judgmental. 87% 87% of young millennials who do not attend church, 87% of them, David Kinneman did this study, wrote a book called Unchristian, that 87% of people that he interviewed who don't go to church in the millennial generation, if there's a word to describe Christians, 87% of them said, I would, yeah, I would consider them to be judgmental. Here's what that means. You meet somebody in their 20s that you meet somebody in their 20s, you meet 10 people in their 20s who don't go to church, you invite them to come, they say, why? You say, I'm a Christian. Then nine out of 10 of these people will immediately peg you as being judgmental. Why? Could it be that we spend so much time comparing our morality with the morality of other people or our lives with the lives of other people that we can't think that we're poor in spirit? that we actually think we're rich compared to them. I'm a lot better than they. I don't come late to church. I go to Bible study. I go to house church every week. I serve in this way. We don't think we're worse. We don't think we're as be- We're that bad because we look at ourselves compared to other people. 87% of young millennials who don't go to church say those who do are judgmental. There's something that happens that's powerful When we begin to realize what it is to be poor in spirit, it's not by looking down on other people, but it's by looking up at God and realizing that compared to God, I'm utterly and completely bankrupt. I don't have anything with which to boast when I compare myself to God. I may be so busy looking down that I don't have time to look up. And that's why I'm judging people all the time. That's why I'm critical. That's why I look with condescension about, uh, at other people because I'm not looking up at God. But something begins to happen. There is this church that, that um, rich, prestigious church in, in England. And Kent Hughes tells a story about um, this church. And what this church did is they started a lot of other mission halls. Basically, these are smaller churches that met in the poor part of the city. Uh, throughout England. And they started a bunch of these different mission halls, and and poor people would come, homeless people would come, and all these different, you know, kinds of people would come. Very different from the kinds of people that frequented this rich, prestigious church in the middle of London. But the first Sunday of every year, they would have a joint worship service where all of the mission halls would gather together at the big church, and they would have their worship service. And there is this one Particular, and they would have communion. There's one particular communion where they don't do it like us, where people come up and they get and they walk back. There's a, there's a communion bench where they would kneel. And as a pastor was watching communion, he saw that there was a former criminal who came to know the Lord through one of these mission halls and he was kneeling at the bench receiving communion. Next to him was the judge that had sent him The prison. And the pastor thought, what a beautiful picture this is. And so after communion was done, they were all dismissed and the worship service was done. He went out and he found that judge. And he said to the judge, he said, did you notice who was kneeling and taking communion next to you? He said, yeah, I saw him. And the pastor said, what a miracle of grace. And then he went on to say, you know, that, that criminal, he just for all of the bad things he did, for all the things that he stole and all of the ways in which he was evil and for God to reach out to him and to save him. What a miracle. And then, and then the judge stopped him. He said, no, I'm not talking about him. And he knew he was broken and he was desperate how much he needed a savior. But me... I grew up going to church. I was moral. I was upright. From the womb, I was taught to be a gentleman, to teach people right, that my word is my bond, to never break my promise, to do all these things right. I'm a judge. I uphold the law. And I thought everything was good about me, and I didn't need a Savior. But I'm the miracle. I'm the bigger miracle, because people like me don't often realize how much we need a Savior. And it's people like him who've grown up in church, we think we've done it all. At least I, didn't, I don't do those things, man. I never slept with anybody. I never did drugs. I never drank alcohol when I was underage. And we're oftentimes the ones who forget to realize how broken we are and how much we need a Savior and how much a miracle it is that God has saved us because we think we're all right. And a lot of times we think I've gone halfway and God had to meet me the other halfway instead of realizing we're completely bankrupt and broke before an almighty, perfectly holy God. But something happens when we begin to see the greatness of God and stop looking down on other people. When we realize how bankrupt and utterly jacked up we are and how we've got nothing to bring before God. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Something begins to happen. Remember the prophet Isaiah, this golden-tongued preacher. The great preacher of his day in 700 B.C. When he encountered God, no matter what other people said about him, he's the great Isaiah, he's the great preacher, he's the great judge, he's the moral one. He said, in light of God, when he saw God, he said, woe is me, I am ruined. Because I understand that the people I live with are messed up, but I am just as messed up as they are. In view of God, pride gets crushed and gets suffocated. And the ensuing aroma is a poverty of spirit that the world desperately longs to see in the church. The Apostle Paul, when he started out his ministry, first missionary journey, he's writing a letter to the Corinthian church. He says, I'm the least of the apostles. You get to the middle of his life. He's writing his prison epistles. He's writing the church in Ephesus. He says, I'm the least of believers, saints. And then at the end of his life, he's writing to Timothy and Titus. He says to Timothy, I'm the worst of all sinners. The more we see God, the more we realize how utterly bankrupt we are. And so we say with Paul, I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why in the world should I gain from his reward? Had not give an answer. That ought to be our posture. In light of God, in light of grace, in light of mercy, sometimes we ju- it just causes us to be still and to be quiet. I don't have anything to say. Especially no words of judgment, no words of condemnation towards people who don't quite live the way that I think they ought to live. But we do that, we do that when we exclude these quote-unquote sinners from the community of humanity and then we exclude ourselves from the community of sinners. And we think for some reason that we're not sinful like they. Something happens when we begin to see God. Poverty of spirit begins to rise up within us. We realize, I have nothing to offer. And as soon as we begin to admit that, then the blessings of the Beatitudes begin to get poured out into our lives. It just comes to us when we realize, I've got nothing. I've got nothing. It's the doorway. and every Alcoholics Anonymous understands this better than a lot of churches do. That the first thing we need to realize is that I am utterly broken and beyond repair. And I need help from a higher power. The first thing that happens when you come into Alcoholics Anonymous, you say, my name is David and I'm an alcoholic. I am powerless to change my life. I can do nothing to fix myself. I need help from a power that is beyond me, above me, to bring me out of the bankruptcy that I find myself in. And unless we can admit to that, we're never going to change. That's what he's saying. Unless you come poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven will never be opened up to you. If you think that you can contribute something, that you can earn your way, no matter what the world thinks of you, it doesn't matter. It's what God thinks of you. And he says, you're you're, you're utterly bankrupt before a morally perfect God. And unless we own up to the fact that we're bankrupt, we'll completely forever be closed off to that which God wants to do in our lives and the true and lasting change. Um, Brennan Manning, his book Ragamuffin Gospel, tells us this great story about this AA group, Alcoholics Anonymous group. And uh, there's about 24 people in that group, and there's a guy named Max. First time there, Max was CEO of a company he was balling. Five kids, marriage. A lot of them were going off to successful colleges. He was slick. He could talk well. But he was also a raging alcoholic, and he wasn't ready to admit it. They came to that meeting for whatever reason. He came, whether he was pressured in or he felt like he needed to, but he was there. And they sat in a circle, and the leader started poking and pushing buttons, trying to get him to admit that I'm an alcoholic and I'm beyond repair. I need help. But he wouldn't admit it. He wouldn't admit it. So he started asking him all these questions. How, how much do you drink? He's like, I just drink eight cocktails a day. No more, no less. I stop at eight every time. I can handle it. I can control it. I'm all right. He says, uh, okay, well, uh, tell me about your life. And he's trying to, you know, trying to get him, but if, for the life of him, he won't say, I, I, I need help. And so the guy, so the leader says, okay, I'm going to call uh, the local bar in the town you live in. All right, call him. So he calls him up. And he says, how much does Max drink? He's Like Max drinks like a stinking fish just chug and chug, he just he's he's out of control and so as max is hearing overhearing this he gets, just gets so upset furious he's like screaming and cursing and yelling at the at the group but he won't admit to it so he sits down thinking it's all over they're like what about your kids you ever been mean to your kids he's like oh, my kids love me my kids are going to harvard they're going to yale you know the ones that are still with they 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 love us and and the leader's like, I, I didn't ask that. I didn't ask that. I didn't ask how much you how successful your kids are. I asked, have you ever been mean to them? Because every dad at one point has been mean to their kids. What about you? He says, all right, well, last year, Christmas Eve, I was a little bit, I forgot about my daughter. I was a little bit mean to my nine-year-old Debbie, but that's it. So what happened? I don't remember. It wasn't a big deal. It wasn't that big a deal. I just have a bad taste in my mouth about it. Like, you sure you don't remember? He says, I forgot about it. I mean, it, it happened. It, it's done, but... You know, besides that, I'm a good dad. The leader calls up his wife. Says, hey, you remember what happened last year on Christmas Eve? I remember it like it was yesterday. Max took our nine-year-old daughter, Debbie, to go to the mall to go Christmas shopping. Gave her $60 and said, buy the best clothes you want. And she bought the best clothes she, she could get. And she was so happy. And She came skipping back and she said, you're the best dad ever. So Max thought that well this deserves a reward so patting himself on the back he said okay Debbie I'm going to stop by uh, the tavern here and I'm just going to drink a couple beers I'll leave the engine on I'll leave the car running leave the heater on I'll lock the door so nobody gets in He said what happened after that and she was silent for a while She said he left at 3 in the afternoon came back home at midnight punch drunk It was freezing cold outside the engine stopped, the windows froze, daughter got frostbite, two fingers had to be amputated, and she's going to be deaf the rest of her life. By this time, Max was on his knees, crying, weeping, sobbing. The leader got off the phone with his wife. He kicked him, said to the others in the group, he said, Let's go. I'm not running a rehab for liars. Later, Max chased him out, and he said, please, I need help. I need help. I've got three options. I've got three options. Either I'm going to go insane, I'm going to die early, or I'm going to get better. And when he admitted that he was utterly helpless, change began to happen in his life, and he was transformed. He came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and people would just tell stories about him. He became the most affectionate guy. He was the most vulnerable person. He loved everyone who came. He believed in everyone who came. He extended grace to them. But it all starts when we admit that we've got problems and we need help and we are utterly and desperately incapable of solving our own issues. We need a savior. We need him bad. Blessed life begins, y'all. Blessed life begins. Not when we say, okay, I'm down to my last nickel. But when we hit rock bottom and we realize in light of God, I'm utterly and completely broke. I'm utterly and completely in need of him to do everything to save me because I can. The first thing we see. The second thing we see when we do, we taste heaven by experiencing God's nearness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the gateway. Uh, you enter in through poverty of spirit, then the blessings of God get opened up to you, and it's the entry point into the kingdom of heaven. You acknowledge your need. You acknowledge that I need help. You acknowledge that you need a savior. Then heaven is opened up to you. He says, "For theirs." is the kingdom of heaven, saying you will be there in the new heavens and the new earth in some future day, but the reality is that you could taste that in the here and now. What does that mean? What is heaven to you? What is the essence of heaven? There are a lot of things that make heaven, and there are a lot of things that make heaven beautiful, and there's a lot of things that make heaven appealing to a lot of us. The fact that we'll get to see loved ones. The fact that there'll be no more sickness, no more crying, no more death, no more injustice. The fact that there'll be no more human trafficking, there'll be no more pedophilia, there'll be no more things like that. All of these things will be eradicated and all of the wrongs will be made right. That's definitely something to look forward to in heaven. The fact that our bodies will be renewed, we'll be able to to do the things that we, we weren't able to do in this life. The fact that we'll be able to not sin is reason for us to get excited about heaven. But the essence of heaven, without which heaven would not be heaven, is that we will see and be with Jesus for all eternity. That is the essence of heaven. And if there is nothing else about heaven, then that would be heavenly enough for us to have heaven and to long for heaven. This is what Jesus is saying. So what does it mean then that... Poor in spirit, being poor in spirit is the gateway into tasting and experiencing the blessing of heaven. Let me, let me show you what Isaiah 57 says. This is one of the great passages of Scripture. In Isaiah 57, verse 15, um, this is what that, that great prophet Isaiah says. He says, for this is what the high... And lofty one says, he's talking about God, obviously. He who lives forever, whose name is holy, is what God says. I live in a high and holy place, okay? we call that heaven, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lone, lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Get that, understand that this is what he says. I live in a high and holy place. My home, my address is heaven, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. Right? To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That's what he's saying. Think God's address is in heaven, but this is where he hangs. So uh, my family, Olivia, myself, our kids, we live about 10, 15 minutes away in Windermere. Road called Jerby Street, and, and some of y'all have been there. So maybe you're, you're hanging out with somebody who hasn't been there before, someone new to our church and driving around. You're, oh, you know, this is where D.L. and Olivia and their family lives. Oh, really, right there? Yeah. Hey, let's stop by. I, I wanted to, um, I don't know, buy him a new car or something like that, and I just want to tell him. So why don't we stop by? And, uh, oh, you know what? He may not be home right now, but uh, I'll tell you where he – there's this one coffee shop. There's this one cafe. There's one Panera uh, down in, in, in Windermere. He always hangs out there. If you want to find him? That's where you can find him. What Isaiah is saying, get this, he's saying God's address is in heaven, but you want to find God, you want to know where God hangs out, you want to know where God hangs out? This is where he hangs out, with people who are contrite and lowly in spirit. You want to find God, you'll find him in places with people like that. You ever spend time with people who are just deeply poor in spirit, who recognize that they've got no boast in heaven and on earth except Jesus? And after you spend time with them, you're just like, dang. I feel like I'm I'm, I'm meeting with Jesus. Because God's address is in heaven. Because he can hang with you. You want to see where God hangs out? Poor in spirit. You're poor in spirit. God will chill with you. He'll hang with you. He'll be intimate with people like that. You know what? People say Christianity is the most exclusive message in the world. It says, why Jesus and Jesus only? Can I tell you what? It is the most inclusive message in the world. It doesn't say you have to be good, rich, poor, anything like that, strong. You just have to admit that you're none of those things. It's the most inclusive message in the world. Jesus says, you want me to hang with you? God says, you want me to hang with you? He comes to those people who realize that they're jacked up. They're broken. They need help. You know what begins to happen when we realize that we're poor in spirit? And it's a realization. That's what it is. We're all poor in our spirits. But this idea of being poor in spirit comes to those who realize that, who recognize that. And who come and say, here I am at your feet in my brokenness complete. That's what that alcoholic Max said. Here I am at your feet. I'm broken. I'm messed up. But you know what? In your presence, at your feet, I find myself complete. You know what happens when we're poor in spirit? One of the fruit of poverty of spirit is that we stop complaining so much. And sometimes when we complain, just listen, your words, okay? your words can tell you and tell other people. It's one of the clearest expressions of whether you really believe the gospel or not, because out of the overflow of your heart, the mouth speaks. And if we're complaining all the time, a lot of the reason is because we feel like God owes us something. I've been going to church all my life. How can you treat me like this, God. I'm not as bad as them. How come they're getting a better life than me? I pray to you, God, you owe me. Why is this happening in my life? We don't really believe the gospel. We believe there's an exchange that I buy something from you and you give it back to me. That's what we believe and we're always complaining. Can we be honest for a second? Let's get practical here because Christianity has to touch our lives. The Bible has to touch where we live. You don't just sing about it here, believe it here, and then you go off and live however you... You want to know you really believe the gospel. Think about what you're saying. You feel like God owes you something? You feel like, you know what? I have to serve you and, oh, certain things of serving God are, are, are there below me. I'm not going to do that, right? Leave that for the new believer. Yeah, you're bargaining with God. You don't really believe the gospel. At a visceral level, at a heart level, you don't really believe it. At an applicational, practical level, you don't really believe it if you're always complaining. God, why'd you treat me like this? The attitude of the ones who get is they see everything as a gift because we didn't deserve anything to begin with. God, you don't owe me anything. I come empty-handed and whatever I do for you is a gracious, that's my joy because you've given me so much. Every day, every week at school, our, our daughter Manny, Tuesday to Thursday, she goes to school. She has a job every week. There's some that she loves doing. She loves being the line leader. She loves being the fish feeder. She loves being the sweeper of of the floors. But she doesn't like being the trash person. You know why? You know, every Tuesday I say, Manny, what was your job this week? And On Tuesday, because that's when she gets assigned the job, she's like, today I got to, this week I'm the trash taker. Like, how come you're so upset about that? Because... Me and one other person have to take the trash out of our trash can, tie it, and we have to walk to the dumpster, which is past the parking lot. Like That's cruel and unusual punishment. I said, you have to go by yourself. I should talk to them. Then Noah teacher goes with us. That's not that bad. She's like, but we have to go during recess time. And so she doesn't like it. And then the other job says the door holder. It's so boring. All we do is hold the door and people walk out. And then I close the door and I walk behind them. I don't like being the door holder. And I realize that's the exact same job in the temple that the sons of Korah talk about. Psalm 84. They say, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They're ever praising you. And I'd rather hold doors in the house of my God, even though that's the furthest place from the altar, from where we see God. That's the furthest place, but I'd rather do that than to spend a thousand years anywhere else in the world. God, it's my joy just to hold the door, even though I seem so far from you. If I can hold the door for you, then that's my joy. Whatever we get to do, we get to do. We don't have to do it. We don't have to do anything for God. We get to do it. And the truly poor in spirit realize that. Whatever I can do, I do. For the glory of your name. Poor in spirit. You know how else you know you're poor in spirit? Your prayer life will reflect that. You'll pray. Because you're real, you know, poor people. You don't have anything. What do you do? You have to ask. You've got to ask. You don't have lunch today. Either you'll starve, but you don't have lunch tomorrow. You might starve more. You don't, after about three or four days, you probably go and say, uh, you know what, I need to ask. If we're poor in spirit, I've got nothing. God, would you give? Would you give to me? But the irony is that the poor in spirit not only ask, but they're the ones who often receive. Because we come with empty hands, God loves to give to people like that. Realize that they've got nothing, that I've got nothing before you, God. I just come. Maybe I could get grace from you. And throughout the Bible, it says God gives grace to the humble. But he opposes the proud. Ever wondered why? Maybe it seems like your prayers are not being answered. Could it be because you think that they deserve to be answered? Become poor in spirit. Our kids, you know this, you got kids. Your kids know they don't deserve anything. But they say, can I have? And even though they don't have anything, they ask for bold things. They ask for big things. And as a father, as a parent, you can't always give it to them. But sometimes because you love them, you surprise them. You say, yeah, here, here you go. And they love it and they love it because they don't demand it. They don't kick and scream and say, I cleaned my room. You owe me something. They don't say that. say, Mommy, Daddy, could you, would you, maybe? And when you give it to them, they realize it's all grace, it's all love. Isn't it a wonder that poor people who have nothing constantly Go back to the same rich throne. And they receive grace upon grace upon grace. Since when could beggars become choosers? Only when there was this man who came into this world rich. God, everything, at his disposal. But it says in The Corinthian letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We know his grace, the grace of Jesus Christ, who though he was rich beyond measure, for your sakes, for my sake, became poor. Didn't have a house, didn't have money, walked around and lived on the dependence, depending on other people. Why? Why? So that through him we who are poor could become rich. This is grace. It's all a scandalous, undeserved, undeserved gift God's given to us. The only requirement that we come, we say, I don't deserve it. I, I need it. I don't deserve it, but I've come because your grace is welcoming. When that happens. We experience an intimacy with God, a nearness with God. We hear the voice of love. We feel His presence. We know His love, and we can give that freely, graciously to other people. Because we're always looking up, not looking down, and we can give as freely as we've received. Let's pray. Let's uh, take a moment to pray to the Lord. Maybe for some of us, we, uh, we've got to repent before God and say, Lord, I admit that I don't look up enough. I look down on people. And when there's so many people in my life that I look down on, then maybe you're telling me that I need to look up. Maybe you're saying to me that the issue is not with all those people. but Maybe the bigger issue is with my own heart. God forgive me, I'm sorry. Lord, I'm sorry. Maybe the people that I've looked down upon will actually, maybe they'll see grace and maybe they'll change, not because I'm always looking down on them, but maybe because I'm looking up at you and they're seeing a grace and a humility in and through me. Lord, have mercy on me, forgive me, cleanse me, wash me. Lord, I want to be like Jesus, purify my heart. Maybe there's some of us who we think that we bring something before God. And because of that, God owes us something. God owes us heaven. He owes us answers. He owes us at least a better life than the life I'm living now. Maybe we too have missed the point of the gospel. And it's not a consumeristic exchange. It's not a business transaction. But it's we who had nothing received fullness. And he who had fullness received poverty. Because that's grace. And maybe some of us here are saying, yeah, you know what? I need Jesus in my life. I've been going to church and I've been doing and saying the right things and maybe sometimes I said the wrong things but I, I, I thought I was okay but as I come today I realize I'm not. I realize that I'm not. I realize that I've tried to contribute to my salvation. I can't. That you, you can uh, invite Jesus to be your Savior. Invite Him to be your Lord. Pray that in your heart. As we all take a moment, half a minute, minute to just talk to God, honestly, I'm going to give just an invitation at the end of a minute or so for anyone who wants to put their trust in Christ for the first time. Let's pray for a few moments, confessing, repenting, receiving, opening our hands if you feel like you've got nothing and you know that. Just open your hands and say, God, would you fill me? Would you fill me with more of you? Let's pray together. Continue to to lead us in prayer. A lot of uh, people in our world and maybe even within churches they think that heaven is earned by doing good but the bible tells us there is no one who does good enough not even one there's no one who understands and there's no one really who seeks god so as we uh, just keep our eyes closed if there's anyone in here realize i have yet to receive the free gift of god's grace for salvation in my life. And I need him. I need him. I need to let go. It's not based on my goodness, not based on how much I've done for him, but it's simply grace. If there's anyone like that in here, just ask you with your eyes closed, you can just raise your hand. be some people like this in here uh, and for their sake we're going to pray together to put, their, to put our trust in Christ to be reminded of these truths if you're already a Christ follower and then to be willing to put your trust in Christ now if you're not I'm going to pray this prayer and you can make it your own and, and we'll continue to worship the Lord and respond through songs and tithes and offerings Father in heaven thank you for loving me Thank you for loving me before I was even born. Thank you for loving me before I did any good, before I ever served you, before I ever got involved in a church. Jesus died for me as a sign of your love. I confess that I cannot earn my way to heaven and I cannot do enough good to build a stairway of good works to get high enough to be in your presence. But what I could not do, you did for me by sending Jesus the ladder to come down from heaven. He lived and did the things that I could not do and then on the cross he died the death that I should have died. I thank you that he loved me in this way. I believe that he did that for me. So come into my life. Be my Savior and be my Lord. Capture me by grace so that instead of defining myself by those around me find myself by the one above me who lives in me. May that be, may you be my identity. May you be my hope and joy. Thank you. I love you because you have loved me first. And may we as a church be a church of grace. Realizes our need for you. Realizes how bankrupt we are and how empty we are apart from you. Realize that we can do nothing To contribute to our right standing before you, Father, help us to receive the gift of grace from nail-scarred hands, and to know that it's all a gift. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. That's all right.